This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. It's your club and this is your show. Maybe not the easiest two games to watch for Manchester City fans this week, but three points in the league and progression to the FA Cup sixth round isn't to be sniffed at as it's kept Pep Guardiola's side top of the table and still in the hunt for another major trophy. But there is that little niggling doubt over the recent performances, especially since things haven't been right since the defeat to Spurs. We'll be digging into that on today's Blue Moon podcast, plus we'll preview Sunday's Manchester derby as it's surely become a must-win game with Liverpool still hot on City's tails. How can Guardiola put a stop to the recent slow displays and what that the team need to do to make sure there isn't a repeat of previous derby defeats at the Etihad. All of that to come. Howard Hawking will be back on the show later on, plus we'll get insight into how Ralph Rangnick's side are doing at the moment. But first, it's time to introduce this week's guests. I'm David Mooney. I'm joined by City fans Ali Fogg. Hello there. And Chris Higginbottom. Hello, you all right? Not too bad, thanks. Chris, Ali, you well? Yeah, more or less. I've, uh, I've got myself a very old-fashioned, non-novel coronavirus, and I'm sneezing <laughs> spontaneously. Excellent. Um, uh, just in terms of yourself, Chris, you well? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Can't grumble. Realised I forgot to ask you in the uh, in the back and forth at the start there, and you know we've got to we've got to do as much delaying tactics to avoid talking about the derby, haven't we? So uh, there we go. Um, <laughs> Let's let's crack on. Let's start with uh, with Everton and Peterborough because Chris, it was uh, two wins. Um, but are we at the stage of the season already where it's only really the results that matter? Well, definitely. Although you know, results obviously count more than performance. But you you'd want to go, be going into the weekend on a, a better performance than uh, than Everton and, and Peterborough have given us. But I think uh, it's to be expected to have a tough time at Goodison. And pitch at Peterborough is a bit of a leveller. So, yeah, I'll take it. I'm not going to complain about the performance in those two games, given that the uh, results were, were as we wanted. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, at half-time, Ali, in both games, um, I was I was fearing that things weren't going to click. Is, I mean, is, that how it, is that the reading you were getting as well? Uh, at Peterborough, no. I was fairly confident that if the worst comes to the worst, we had, none, we had 120, uh, 120 minutes to play with. Um, and, you know, if it was still nil-nil at an hour in, then we had plenty of ammunition on the bench, and I never doubted for a moment that it would come good in the end of Peterborough. Um, at halftime at Everton, I was I was not just worried; I was actually quite angry about it all. It was uh, if it hadn't come off the back of that Spurs performance, I would have been mm. quite philosophical. But it seemed to be one of those moments. I, you know, I I I love Pep Guardiola with all my heart and all my soul, and will do until my dying day. But he does have a stubborn streak sometimes. And I think he picked a team against Tottenham thinking it would be good enough to win. And when he wasn't, rather than thinking again, he, he doubled down and said, right, I'm going to show them. And <laughs> I picked the same midfield again and got the exact same result again. And I was I was pulling my hair out. Um, and yeah, it all turned out in the end. Uh, but I did not enjoy that Everton game at all. Uh, and I... Hope that is something we've now got out of our system with the uh, the Spurs and, and Everton games and can uh, revert to where we were a few weeks ago for the for the derby. Yeah, Chris, have you got any ideas what what made it click in both games? Because City came out in after half time against Everton and it was it was a much better second half performance. I know I know the goal came late on, but it it certainly felt like City were were, were pressing for that goal in the in the second half. And against Peterborough again, second half comes along, City suddenly that that it's like they've moved up a couple of gears again. Is it just a lesson in being patient? Do you think? I think so. I think there's a certain amount of kind of consolidation in the first half. You don't want to 
um, give anything away. But I don't know. It's like he did pick the same team as against Spurs for, for Everton. And it's in the midfield, isn't it, where we seem to get... It's what we do to other teams almost. We get sucked in a bit and then we're vulnerable. But I don't, it's, it's the, it seems like we get we get opened up and Pep, like you say, when he doesn't when he doesn't react to that, is he being stubborn or is it just he's proving to himself that this is how we get? He, he watches how it happens and then he's going to change it. I don't know how reactive he's going to be because you can't you can't really slag him off for long because he always comes good, doesn't he? Like. It's it's hard to put your finger on where it's going wrong because we do have such a strong team and when when you're getting um picked off by Spurs and then we think, well, it'll be fine against Everton. I don't know, Lampard teams know how to set up against us to an extent because they try to do what Spurs did and Everton aren't as good as Spurs, so they weren't as good at that. But it does need a bit of a tweak, doesn't it? Bernardo can do He's a lot more mobile in terms of jobs that he can do. Should he be employed in a in a in a different way? There's things need cutting out um, yeah. and leaving us less vulnerable. But at the same time, sometimes when we are getting picked off, it's just a very it's very very fine edge that they're getting away with. And you wouldn't, you know, he's a percentage man, any pep. So a lot of the time, most of the time, he's thinking the way we set up that's not going to happen. And it's like it just always seems to be Spurs that managed to <laughs> just beat those odds and, and, and get away with it. I mean, yeah. look at how they've performed in their other games. They're, they're pretty abject, really. Yeah. Just managed to uh, come up with the goods against us. Same goes for Everton, though, really, in many ways. They've been pretty abject in every game other than that one against City. I mean, Ali, the the, the, the game at Goodison, the number of times where um, City found themselves under pressure in their own half, normally you'd back them to, to, to play out of it. But I, th- there was just so many times where Everton seemed to win the ball high up, wasn't there? There was, and Everton had an intensity to them that we didn't. Um, I mean, I did, to, at the risk of, of harping on about the midfield, um, I have latterly come and come round to agreeing with a theory about uh, Gundogan and De Bruyne, which have, people have been debating for you know, year, literally years now. Um, both of them are absolutely world-class creative midfielders, um, yeah, Oki Gundogan is one of the best creative midfielders in the world. Uh, Kevin De Bruyne is, in my opinion, the best creative midfielder in the world. And yet, when they're on the same pitch at the same time as each other, both of them seem to be less of the player than they are otherwise. And I've never quite understood why. There's something about, I think, uh, yielding to the other a little bit and, and not dominating the space they would if they were the only one of the two of them on the pitch. Um Added to that, Bernardo, we were getting a lot less out of Bernardo by playing him kind of all across the front and never quite sure where he was meant to be. Um, but, you know, he has been so good as the, the second midfielder in a, you know, just in front of Rodri. And uh, and it, it, we didn't seem to get the best out of him in either of those matches as well. Um, so I think, I mean, for me, it does come down to a, a tactical formation thing um, that when that we have got fantastic players in Rodri and Gundogan and Bernardo and De Bruyne, but you can only really get three of them on the pitch at the same time. I, I am so fed up of uh, the amount of games, important games that we have slipped up in over the years. And it appears to be because 
uh, Pep Guardiola is trying to find some cunning way of getting Gundogan on the pitch, which I can kind of understand because Gundogan's a fantastic player and obviously he means a lot to Guardiola. But it just seems to be a pattern that happens again and again and again when we've got a weird formation and when we've got a disappointing result. Uh, somewhere Pep has been doing something weird in order to try and get Gundogan on the pitch. Uh, it's funny and, you should say that, Ali, because there was a time just recently where he wasn't being picked and people complaining about it, but the results were great. Well, exactly, yeah. And, and we should also say, whenever Kevin has been injured uh, over you know over the years, but particularly the, the long injury he had a season or two ago, um, Gundogan stepped up to the mark and was absolutely incredible. He's, he's an amazingly valuable player for us, and I don't want anyone to think I'm slagging him off. Uh, it's something about the combination of players that, that has just never quite clicked, and, and I've I, I kind of given up on it. I think maybe Bernardo alongside one of those players just gives you that much more when we've not got the ball, that when it is those two next to each other and we've not got the ball, there's not that ability to to mop it back up with the yeah. same intensity that Bernardo provides. So, yeah, it is a difficult one. Yeah, that could be it. Um, Chris, we've, we've put it off long enough now, but five days on, uh, are you still convinced that it was the T-shirt line that the ball hit and not uh, not Rodri's arm? Did, or did City get away with one? Is, is it okay to say City got away with one there? Well, we need VAR lines on the T-shirt, don't we? Um, <laughs> that's what we need. That's the next logical step in the technological uh, war, arms race, if you if you pardon the pun. Um, I don't know. It's it's. I don't see all the fuss about it. I don't know why it's received such a massive um, attention and it's managed to get an apology out of Mike Riley, of all people. Like, what? I'm surprised it's not been mentioned in Parliament. I mean... It's absolutely mental the amount of focus that's gone on this. There's been that many clear-cut decisions that have gone against us that don't even get mentioned in like a half-time roundup or a, the chat at full-time or match of the day or what have you. It just gets, oh, well, yeah. Oh, you could have had a penalty there. You know, like Liverpool, like blatant handballs in the box. And it's just, uh, it was it was borderline. Yes, I was surprised it wasn't given as a handball. I mean, because... I don't expect things like that to, to go for us. Let's not talk about that Wolves penalty we got. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, sometimes things go for you. Like, a lot of the time, things don't go for us. We don't get apologies for it or, like, you know, lambasted in the press for God knows how long and social media just goes into, like, apocalypse mode. It's just, we got the decision. We, You know, they might not have scored the penalty, it was offside anyway. I believe it. Lampard said he was told that it wasn't offside. I don't know how thoroughly that was checked. Um, apparently, it got checked on some different sports media broadcasters across the Atlantic, and it was shown as offside. So, you know, it's kind of a moot point. They probably would have missed it anyway. If they'd have scored it, would we have scored again? I mean... How, how, how far do you want to kind of well, this extrapolate is the into the land of theoretical? It's absolute bollocks. Get on with it. This is the thing. I can clear it up um, because had handball been given, uh, it may still not have been a penalty because there was a there was a chance that Richarlison was offside. That wasn't checked by the VAR um, right. because the decision the VAR came to was that, um, that there was no conclusive evidence that the ball had only hit Rodri on the part of the arm that he's not allowed to, um, to, to, to handle it with. You've got the T-shirt line. The ball can strike the arm above that and below it at the same time then it ju- then they judge on how much of it has uh, has crossed over that line how influential it was all that sort of stuff um and so the, the VAR looked at uh, three images um 
of the handball. They're, with the cameras are synced up. They look at it um, three images at the same time. Um, and there's one of the images that cast doubt on whether it actually made contact with his arm at that point. And at that point, they can't. They decided that it wasn't enough to overturn the decision that was on the field. Um, that being said, Ali, this is what Guardiola said about it um, midweek. Uh, I just wonder if this might change your mind if uh, on the decision. What I would say, the, the pass of Dele Alli looks like offside to Richarlison. If he's not offside, it's penalty. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. Simple as that. If it's not offside, it's a penalty. Uh, do you agree? Well, I think it should be a penalty. Um, I've got absolutely no idea what the actual laws of the games and, and the, the uh, guidance on how the laws should be interpreted are. Um, I just don't know. And I kind of say this about every controversial decision now. I can say what I think the decision should be, um, but that's on... on my understanding of the game of football, not what the laws of the game now say. Um, so where I am on on all of this, uh, this T-shirt line uh, uh, rule, it's not even a rule, it's, it's an interpretation of the rules, was, as I understand it, it was brought in because of VAR, they had these uh, laser pinpointed offside lines being drawn in to, you know, within a quarter of an inch. And there was a series of decisions, including most of which seemed to involve Ryan Sterling, uh, where he was being ruled offside on his armpit hair. And nobody could quite decide whether they were meant to be drawing the line from his chest, from his forehead, from the tip of his shoulder or what. Um, and the referees went away and came back, said, right, we've, we've come up with this thing called the T-shirt line. There's a red zone, there's a green zone. If the ball hits above there and below there, then that's how it's going to be. Uh, and all they did was they created a whole lot of new confusion and contradictions. And they've ended up with situations where, uh, for, you know, the Liverpool fans who've been complaining bitterly about the uh, handball about that wasn't given about <laughs> <laughs> about the handball that wasn't given against Rodri. Um, it's the same T-shirt line that uh, had Lukaku uh, flagged offside in the League Cup final on Sunday. You know, his, his T-shirt line was slightly ahead of the defender's foot. Um, and so, they, you know, Chelsea had what looked to me like a good goal struck out. That was the T-shirt line. It was the same T-shirt line that I think that the single worst VAR decision I've ever seen, and I haven't gone back to check who it was, but I've got a feeling it might have been Patrick Bamford for Leeds, who was standing... Is that Palace with, against Palace? I, I think it might have been, yeah. He was standing with both feet firmly on side, his chest on side, his head on side, and he pointed to his winger where he wanted the ball to go. And because he lifted up his arm and pointed, that lifted his T-shirt line into an offside position and he was flagged off and, and they, they had a goal struck off. That was uh, a that, that is just absolute comedy. Um, but in the rules of the, you know, they, yeah. they come up with these rules and, and that's what it says. R- rules are rules. That's what that's what I say. The, 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 the VAR could not find a handball against Rodri. Rules are rules. Oh, quite. <laughs> uh, uh, one, one thing I would do in all of this, uh, change, the, change the offside rule to feet. That would solve so many of these problems, and 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 also we get rid of those like kind of really close decisions where the defender leans one way. You know, they're kind of both players anticipate a, a ball being played. The defender leans to play out. The attacker leans to move in, and just the the direction that the two of them lean in is enough to change someone from being offside to on onside to offside. Uh, that sucks. That's a really bad rule. Um, change it to feet, and and all of this becomes much simpler, much easier to see when you're watching, whether you're at the ground or at home, uh, and there'll be a lot less injustice I think going on. Can I just ask as well, like, the t-shirt, like, what if you've got long sleeves? 
No, it's it's not actually. <laughs> it's got a line on the long sleeve. It's not a physical T-shirt. It's an imaginary line. Because uh, I, I suggested, you know, the uh, what. Uh, what if you've got the long arms? <laughs> well, I know. Yeah. Um, one of the things I was saying is that the, the thing people don't understand about Rodri is he's got an enormous chest. You know, his chest goes all the <laughs> way down his arms. <laughs> his arms. Uh, no, it, it's, it's not been actually, annexed by his yeah, chest. I, I went and looked at the Premier League rules, and this T-shirt line is a purely hypothetical one. It doesn't actually matter how long your shirt is or whether you pulled okay. it up or, or whatever else. is. It's the kind of top of the bicep. Um, but it's, it's totally arbitrary, and it's very silly, and it really doesn't yeah. work. It, it was a daft idea, and they should scrap it as soon as possible. One thing I will say, Chris, is that if, that, if uh, City win the league by uh, a point or around about that distance, uh, you can guarantee people aren't going to overreact to this incident, are they? <laughs> No, and they won't. Um, they won't talk about any, you know, similarly controversial decisions where we've perhaps dropped a point. Uh, I can't think of it off the top of my head because we've not dropped a massive amount of points. Um, but there's, you know, there's occasion. It is, it is over the course of a season that you, you could always point to this, that, and the other. If Everton go down, they're going to blame that. Um, but you know. They should have gone down in 1994, shouldn't they? Um, <laughs> nobody apologised to me watching the obvious uh, corruption on display when Hans Seegers was getting nutmegged uh, one mile an hour by a P-roller from 30 yards. So, you know, save yeah. it. It all, all comes back round, doesn't it? You see stats pop up all the time about clubs and players, and you want to know that exact thing about City. There's an answer. Statcity.co.uk. Want to find out all of the players who played alongside club legends like David Silva, Sergio Aguero or Vincent Company? Or maybe you'd like to know which team found it hardest to score past Joe Hart. You can find out City's record in every competition, at every stadium and under every manager. Just go to statcity.co.uk and browse away. That's statcity.co.uk. Let's talk about some individuals because um, Phil Foden, Ali, um, his his goal against Everton was his third goal in four games, now five games because of because yeah. uh, of Peterborough. Um, he followed that up with two assists against Peterborough and was, I, I think, the difference in that second half. You could see the second half, he was really starting to enjoy himself with some really, you know, quality outside of the boot passes and, you know, some the, the, the assist for, uh, for Grealish was fantastic. Um, is he having that resurgence that everyone was quietly asking for a few weeks ago? Just about, I think. Um, he's. We should understand that he's been playing the false nine position for most of these games. Obviously, he wasn't a Peterborough. He was much deeper. Um, and you know, we can come back and talk about how good he looks when he is playing deeper. <laughs> when we had that conversation about uh, Gundogan and, and De Bruyne trying to occupy the same space, like, hey, can we just put Phil Foden in the same space? <laughs> well, yeah, that's bound to solve everything. But no, um, while Foden has been playing in the false nine, he's been less involved in... The, the game than he would be either deeper in midfield or uh, on either wing, where he tends to get see quite a lot of the ball. Um, so consequently, he looks like he's having a quiet game. I think probably his form did drop just a, a little smidgen over kind of January February, um, but it's not like it fell off a cliff. He was yeah you know, he was still arguably our best player or very close to being our best player in every game. Um, but what's happened, I think, in uh, I think he's now relaxed into that false nine position, and what the the calmness that he showed those three goals, and they, they were all quite similar in their own ways. Um, he was surra- he was really close to defenders and goalkeeper, um, you know, and 
at least two of them. The, the defenders were practically wearing his shorts at the time. Um, and the ball came in, and it's he does that thing that truly brilliant football, the truly brilliant athletes, sports people, whatever whatever uh, discipline, um, he kind of makes time slow down and stand still. And I don't, I don't think it, they can actually do that. I think that's well, just an well, illusion. You, yeah. you, well, you say that. <laughs> <laughs> but I have seen enough Marvel superheroes in movies in my time. I'm not sure anymore. Uh, what he does is he can control a ball on his toe, drag it six inches, or you know, um, the, the goal that he scored uh, against Everton. Uh, I thought the amazing thing about that um, is he had milliseconds to react when uh, Michael Keane, the defender, uh, kind of missed the ball and just towed it slightly. He, he just deflected it very slightly, um, which diverted it towards the goal. Um, I am absolutely convinced that particularly any specialist number nine, but also probably just about any attacking footballer in the world, sees that ball coming in. What they do is they stab a boot at it. They, they just try and knock it towards the goal and try and knock it under the goalkeeper or whatever. And to be honest, it goes anywhere. It usually just hits the goalkeeper. Um, Phil's instinct, I don't think he had, a, he, of course he didn't have time to actually think this through. It was just it was what his instincts told him to do. Um, this ball came in and what he did is he tapped it with his right into his stride and just took three paces and and, and knocked past the keeper. Uh, like it was the easiest thing in the world. Um, yeah. But I don't think any other player or almost any other player makes that decision. Every other player just snatches at it, tries to knock it into the into the goal first time. And it's that kind of calmness. Um, which game was it when he kind of trapped the ball under his toe? Is one of the... the yeah, I, uh, I was going to say... Uh, he kind of trapped the ball under his toe, just dragged it like a few inches away from the defender, enough to get him enough space to get the shot away. Um, and, and it's that kind of coolness and calmness and, and skill, you know, sh- yeah, incredible ball control, uh, that sets him apart. And I wonder if a lot of that is just about the fact that he's settling into the number nine or false nine rule in the middle. Uh, and he kind of, he doesn't worry about it now. He's just starting to enjoy it. Um, and I still think he will probably end up playing in a more of a De Bruyne position. He, he will end up deeper because I think that's when he's most devastatingly effective. Um, but the fact is he is one of the best players in the world when you play him in any of the positions across the front six. Um, yeah. And that's who he is. Yeah, I was going to say, Chris, that the, the three goals that like all three of the goals are very, very similar in that um, the one at Everton, he like he's in this in inside the six yard box and he takes it round the goalkeeper. He did it against uh, Sporting mm. in the same way. Yeah. The one at Norwich where he, he really dug it out and, and got it into a finishing position. That but was it, ridiculous. It was like yeah. a, a Cruyff turn tap in, which was like half a tackle, half a scramble. Yeah, he did it with such a, an eloquence and an elegance that nobody does that. He, he has an economy of touch and a, a, a skill level that is underappreciated and people seem to because they want to drool over something flamboyant that he does they want to see him trundle along and beat four players or you know do a 360 and a step over and then go past someone and a crossfield ball and then a bit when he plays in roles like the false nine there's he doesn't see as much of the ball but when he does you can't expect him to you know, in the same way that when you're picking the ball up on the inside left or on the half, you know, in the in the centre circle, look up and say, right, I've got some space to run in, so I'm going to beat that. And in the false line role, you, you're making runs that often you aren't getting the ball, which achieve a lot for the team. The way he makes runs, I've seen him make runs where 
the, the, the move comes to nothing, but he's pulled away into a fantastic position. And then if, say, Phil Foden was trying to pass the ball to the person in that position, he probably would have got there and he probably would have scored. <laughs> but because it's Phil Foden making the run, <laughs> yeah. the, the player with the ball doesn't necessarily have the equipment. This is, this is like doing a disservice to a fantastic array of talent that we've got. But, you know, he doesn't necessarily get the ball. So he doesn't get the plaudits playing different roles where he's got the ball all the time at his feet and can run at players than he does when he's playing off or making space for others as sometimes you need to do for the team in that false nine role and I don't think he's not been playing well I think he's been playing excellently but, but you know like I say you can go under the radar playing playing brilliantly like like for instance David Silva used to do yeah. um, and you don't notice how good he is because, like, like I say, economy of touch and off the ball stuff, and just things that his teammates will appreciate. That the fans, when they're wanting to see the the Hollywood stuff, um, might be saying, "Well, why am, why am I not seeing Phil Foden all the time?" Well, you are if you if you look. Yeah, um, the other one that uh, that's kind of come into focus, Chris, this week is uh, is Jack Grealish because Guardiola's been speaking about um, again that people saying that he's not doing enough in terms of numbers and statistics and, uh, and goals and assists. Uh, this is actually what he had to say. It kind of fits with what you were saying about Foden as well. The players today play for the statistics. This is the biggest mistakes they can do. We are involved in that. Statistics is just a pattern, information that we have. But there are players that make make the game or the team play good where they are not in the statistics. But the players just to go how many goals I scored, how many assets, or many da 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 this kind of the situation they don't forget everything. This is a problem to the real world and the real football. It's just my statistics, my statistics. Never existed statistics before. It's how you play today. You perform your maximum, you prefer your best, you help your teammates to, to make the process defensively, offensively, or we are talking about better. It's enough. Please give us your backing. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Phil Foden probably does illustrate what you're saying there, Chris, but I think Grealish does as well because he returned mm. against Peterborough. Um, I thought he had a pretty good game, then he rounded it off with a good goal as well. It's a great goal. Um, obviously made by the, the ball from Foden, but that touch is just like sumptuous, isn't it? You, you, you pay money to see stuff like that. That's what, that's what the top level stuff's all about. Um, totally agree with, with what Pep was saying mainly because yeah it's just echoing what I was saying earlier um, <laughs> I, I'd just like to say I hadn't listened to that clip but um, I mean you know it's just it's what it is isn't it it's true and he must have been listening to you mate yeah he must have been yeah he's finally picked up my voicemails um, <laughs> but like it's like the statistics show goals and assists don't they, they don't always show pre-assists or they don't you know they don't show they don't show the run post. that you make to no, open the space for somebody exactly, to run into and score exactly, do they? Yeah. exactly um and I, I think there's definitely um that bedding in period which people these days are so impatient to see instant um instant glorification gratification of you know you want to see instant success and it's been proven time and time again we've said it on this show loads about the fact that it can take a year to bed into the system i'm sure he's following pep's instructions and pretty much to the letter apart from maybe when he's out on the piss (laughs) um, (laughs) you know i think he's doing okay people are on his back so much and what he does is keeps the ball i want him to be braver at times and i want him to be more incisive and and 
you know, direct. And there was a little bit of that, albeit against Peterborough, where he had a a good little turn and a, a dip in shot, which I think was saved really well. He was going into the far, you know, one of those trademark, like he scored at Old Trafford for Villa. Yeah. A similar sort of bending shot over the keeper that got saved. And it's it's that that you you see that isn't in his game at the moment, but it's so early to be knives out on, on Jack Grealish. Yeah. He's uh, like like Chris said, Ali. If Guardiola keeps picking him, he's obviously doing something right because Guardiola wouldn't keep picking him if he wasn't doing what obviously, he was happy yeah. with, was he? Yeah. At the end, no, I, I completely agree with Chris. And uh, I think it looks to me like uh, Jack is erring on the side of caution when it comes to Pep's instructions. Uh, he looks to me like a young man who's gone into training uh, in his new club, has listened very, 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 very hard to what he's been told by the manager, uh, and is trying desperately hard to follow his instructions, most of which are about ball retention, not taking unnecessary gambles, um, not shooting from anywhere, not doing the kind of things which he used to do at Villa, which is taking responsibility for the high-risk manoeuvre, which may get a goal one time in ten, but nine times out of ten you'll lose the ball. Um, And when you're the superstar in a team like Villa, you can do that, people will indulge you. Uh, He can't do that at City because that's not the way we play. Um, So what, you know, if there's any doubt in his mind whether he can get past a fullback or you know get a shot away? Um, he will turn. He'll pass backwards. Um, and I think as he becomes more confident in his uh, position, as Pep's various complex uh, teachings and instructions all become much more second nature to uh, Grealish, uh, it will become much easier for him to uh, you know just step up, take the shot, or make the the you know, or key pass or, or whatever it might be. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he's been a little bit underwhelming this season. I mean, I don't think anyone could pretend that uh, Jack Grealish has come in and you know, set the Premier League on fire for City this year. He hasn't. Um, but I'm not at all worried. Uh, I think he was bought for the long haul. He was bought for you know the next five, even ten years. Uh, and anyone who knows Pep Guardiola and knows Manchester City and knows how he develops young players uh, shouldn't be at all surprised by what's happened because we've seen it so many times before. Um, it's it's the second season that a new player uh, tends to explode in a Pep Guardiola team. Uh, I know Pep said a, a few weeks ago that, that Jack will get there before then and Pep might well be right. But, you know, we might see the last couple of months of the season he, he's absolutely there. Um, I don't think he's quite there yet, but I'm, I'm perfectly happy with the way he's gone. And when we've got as much talent as we have around him, um, you know, time, we don't need it? to panic yeah. exactly we can give him the time uh, and we can be patient with him and it's all good yeah um, I want to finish the first part of the show with a, a quick word on uh, Alexander Zinchenko because it's uh, a really tough time for him at the moment um, Ali this uh, the, I don't know if you spotted um, uh, ahead of the ahead of the game at Peterborough but uh, Fernandinho actually gave him the armband they yeah. uh, they they made him captain for the game um, he was down. He wasn't down on the team sheet as captain. That was that was Fernandinho. And then the scenes yeah. before uh, the game at Goodison as well were were just incredible. Um, what does this week say about him? It, um, we already knew he was an incredibly brave and courageous and strong young man. Uh, you only need to look at his life story even before the current crisis. I mean, he, he left one of the war zones in, in Ukraine as a little kid, basically. Uh, went more or less on his own to, to Russia and. and uh, made himself a career as a professional footballer um, and ended up here and then fought 
for his place in the city team. You know, it would have been so easy for him to allow himself to get loaned out, sold <laughs> they, out. They've, they've tried to get rid of him, I think, three times. I know they did now. seven yeah. times. Yeah, yeah, and he just absolutely point blank refused to go. He's like, no, sod off, I'm staying here. Um, and that's to his credit. But I mean, I think um, we cannot even, none of us can begin to uh, uh, claim to understand what's been going on in Oleksandr head this week. Um, it's unimaginable. Uh, I do think, as a professional footballer, it's quite likely that when referee's whistle blows to start a game, uh, suddenly he can focus on the one thing he knows best and, and knows how to do and loves above all. Um, and for 90 minutes, he can lose himself in a football match. Uh, and from that point of view, it makes perfect sense why he would want to play in the FA Cup. And uh, the fact he was given the armband, I'm sure, would have been you know, very moving for him, very touching for him, um, and with a, a lovely gesture by Fernandinho, who of course has got really strong connections to Ukraine himself, yeah. um, and you know, not just as a former player, but he must know all the other Brazilians who are who are there at the moment, or have been trying to get out of the country over the last week. Um, so, you know, th- this will be quite significant from Fernandinho's point of view too. Um, it was a lovely gesture, not particularly surprising or, or you know, controversial in any way. Um, but what I would say uh, is uh, immense kudos and thanks and respect to the Everton fans and the Peterborough fans for the way they greeted Zinchenko and, and the support they gave him uh, and the support they gave for the people of Ukraine as well. Um, it's been one of the better things over the last week or so as seeing how the football family has, has rallied around its own when it's come to this. Yeah, Chris, just on Zinchenko as well, you were a little surprised at how little he's featured this season um, because I know Cancelo's been good and everything, but like like Zinchenko's not been a bad option at left-back, has he? No, um, I think you've hit on it there though. He's not bad, he's, he's, a, he's a great player, but it's just uh, Cancelo's just been on really good form. I'm not surprised that when it comes to, you know, if you, you're weighing one against the other, if only slightly, that Cancelo's been tipping the scales in his favour. Um, again, credit to Zinchenko for um, keeping his attitude up and obviously the, the current circumstances. Can't really add uh, anything to what, to what Ali said. I can only echo those sentiments in terms of, like, just can't imagine... Uh, what it's like for him. Yeah, I'm not massively surprised that he's um, not been playing a lot in the form of his uh, competitors, but uh, credit to him that when he is called upon, uh, he he performs on a a good level and even more so at the moment. Yeah. Well, it's the Manchester Derby up next for City. Guardiola's record against United at the Etihad isn't brilliant. In fact, he's won one of six against them at home. To get a view of how United are playing at the moment, I've been speaking to Jay Motti from the Stretford Paddock YouTube channel. It's just been a really underwhelming season, to be honest with you. I mean, the the, the sort of the hope and expectation at the beginning of the season, when we signed the likes of Varane and Sancho, was high for me personally. I can't speak for everyone, but I thought, OK, two good signings that improved the first eleven. Maybe, you know, we could finish second last season. Maybe we can kick on and, and put in a proper title challenge, not one that sort of flatters to deceive like the one the previous year. Uh, and then obviously Ronaldo signs and as someone who's old enough to remember Ronaldo's first time at United and, uh, and obviously have seen him, what he's done since, you can't help but get even more excited. And you think, OK, maybe this, this is a, a chance for us to really get involved in a title race. And before you know it, you know, we're getting battered off of teams. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has been sacked. And a manager, I'll be honest with you, and this isn't a, a criticism of him, a manager I've not really heard of comes in. And it just all feels feels a little bit 
sort of deflating and, and underwhelming. And now we're in a position where we're, we're fighting for top four and, and that's looking dodgy, to be honest with you. It wouldn't surprise me if we don't get it. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's just been a frustrating and disappointing season. And I think Ralph Ragnick's coming in. He's done a decent job. He's sort of steadied the ship. I know that's a horrible cliche, but it's true. Um, and he's got some good results, but this is this hasn't been like you know he's come in and, and managed to to sort of massively turn things around and everyone's firing on all cylinders because yes we've we've picked up some points under him and we have, we think we've only lost one game in the league but we've also dropped a lot of points to teams we should be beating so yeah it's been a little bit frustrating as a United fan this season to be honest yeah I was going to say we're we're talking off the back of the uh, the Watford game and and I guess that kind of sums up where United have been this season because it was like it, it was just one of those games where you thought United could play all day and not score it. It's funny I said that myself. I said it yesterday. I was there on Monday. On Monday, I was doing a, a news report outside of Shafford. I said we could still be playing now. And we wouldn't have scored, and it's that whole thing that I don't know if you've ever had at City, but you know how we have this thing where former keepers come and play against us at Old Trafford and have the game of their lives. And Ben Foster did that. He played very well indeed, and also United didn't finish chances that we should have finished. So that seems to sum things up. It's it sort of sums up the way things have gone under Ragnick because I think he even made the point himself after the game. As a coach, you can only coach your team to create chances. You can't score those goals for them. You can't convert those chances. And if the team are creating lots of chances, then you think you see yourself, OK, the tactics, the setup is right. And that's what happened against Watford. And that's what's happened in a few games this season. I look at the Middlesbrough game in the FA Cup. I look at one or two others. You can maybe look at perhaps the Burnley game where we've had lots of chances, yet we haven't um, finished them. And that's, that's the disappointing thing because those missed chances, those drop points could end up being very costly to us at the end of the season. I remember talking earlier in the season that United were putting or were struggling to put together 90 minutes of performances, if that makes sense. Like there were, there were spells where, where you were really dangerous for, for maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes or so. But then if you've not capitalised on that, that's when you maybe get, get dangerous. And I look at, at kind of like recent games. I mean, take the Leeds game, for instance. You were comfortable winners in the end, but there was a spell where it looked like Leeds were going to get nothing and then they were going to get something and then they got nothing in the end. No, you've hit the nail on the head. We've, we, under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, we had this trait of, of, in the second half, we'd kick in and we'd, we'd, you know, we'd, we'd turn games around. I think our record of turning games around was under Ole was, was something like a Premier League record. We just kept doing it. And then we had that, you know, especially away from home, we had that long unbeaten away run. This season, like you said, we have had these sort of 30-minute, 40-minute spells. We tend to be better in the first half. And it's, do we get enough goals? Have we got goals to, to sort of get us over the line? And invariably, we're not doing. And that's the issue. You saw it against Leeds, and this is a very poor Leeds team. And I think, to a certain degree, I know it's not a derby as such, but all bets are off with United and Leeds because it's such a passionate game. The fans are there, and there is a fierce rivalry there. So you do expect Leeds to to get at you. But we let them back in the game, and it wasn't for the fact that they are quite poor. We might have come unstuck. So, yeah, it's it's an issue that Ralph Randnick must be scratching his head over because we haven't put together a 90-minute performance. I dare say we've barely put together a 70-minute performance. We tend to have 40, 50 minutes where we play good football, we do really well, we create lots of chances, and then we have these other spells where things are going against us, the game sort of just sort of stagnates or the, the other team get out of us. And I know that looking ahead towards the Manchester derby, we can't afford to do that. If we have 40 minutes, 30 minutes, even 10 minutes against City where we're switching off, we could end up in all sorts of trouble, which we saw earlier on in the season at Old Trafford. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna come on to this because um obviously the the, the derby is coming up. Um 
it's a funny one, this, because United have a pretty decent record against City lately. And then in some games, like earlier in the season, City just turn up and go, no, you're not, you're not touching the ball today. And then in other games, you, like United turn up at the Etihad and go, no, we're, we're going to keep scoring on the break. Here's what's going to happen. So how, how, do you, how do you read this game? What, what are you expecting? It is really weird because it's almost like the opposite of what you expect. Your record at Old Trafford is very good. Our record, the record at the Etihad of late has been very good, which is a bit weird. It's the wrong way um, around, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. I don't know why that is because obviously, you know, it's such a passionate game, the Derby. It's always a packed stadium, whichever stadium it's at. And you think the home team would have the, the big advantage, yet that doesn't always work out. I think United have, have got our tactics right against Manchester City in the past. Under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in particular, where we've you know soaked up pressure, hit you on the break with some of our quicker players, that's tended to work. I've got no qualms if that's the approach that Ralph Ragnick takes. I'm not sort of I'll be honest with you, I'm not bothered how we get a result. I just want a result, and if it is, we soak up pressure, we go a bit defensive, and we hit you on the break, and that proves to be effective. I can live with that, to be honest with you, because you know we know what Manchester City can do, and if we do leave ourselves open. We saw it at Old Trafford earlier this season. I mentioned earlier, your midfielders were just running as ragged. I thought Phil Foden had a very good game as well. Raheem Sterling tends to struggle against Aaron Wan-Bissaka. Phil Foden moved over to the left. He was causing Wan-Bissaka all sorts of problems. De Bruyne, who I, spoke, I think I might have spoke to you before the game, a few City fans were saying he hadn't quite got going this season. Well, he certainly picked the wrong game to start getting going <laughs> because he was, he was pretty uh, unstoppable. So, yeah, I think for me, United have just got a sort of look at how we've got results in the past because over the past few years, I get no pleasure in saying this, but we've got to be honest about it, City have been the better team over on the Premier League, yet we've managed to get results against this better team by working our tactics out and make it playing a game that suits us. And I think that's what we need to do this time around as well. Yeah, I was just looking at, at the record at the Etihad, actually. You've won you've won four of the last five. And of the six that, that um, you've played there under Guardiola, you've only lost one. Um, that, I mean, that, does, do, you, do you take confidence out of that? No, I've, I'm bragging and gloating about that fact before it starts crumbling. <laughs> to be honest with you, because I, while we've still got that record... Um, You've got to take a little bit of confidence. Listen, it shows we can win when we can beat City because, like I said earlier, that's been a very good City team we've got those results against. That's been a City team that's winning or challenging for league titles. This isn't a City team that's been going through a difficult spell. That's been a City team that's been picking up record number of points in some seasons. So you've got to take a little bit of confidence from it. I think the the, the problem is, it's a sort of double-edged sword, is we, we know what Pep Guardiola is like. He's going to be looking at that record as well and going, I'm not having this. I need to do something about it. And if Manchester City turn up the way they can with the players you've got, it's going to be a very difficult afternoon for Manchester United. There's no, you know, there's no no doubt about it. Yeah. How do you think um, Ralph Rangnick's going to set up for this one uh, in terms of uh, kind of player selection, that sort of thing? And what what are the who are the players that are in form at the moment that could do City some damage? I think one player that's when I say in form, he's you know he's not been banging in loads of goals, but he's certainly scored a couple. But he's certainly given it. Uh, been sort of giving the fans a big uplift is Anthony Alanga. He's been a sort of a player that, in a, in a like I said earlier, deflating season, an underwhelming season. He's been a shining light and, and he's always exciting when he's on the ball. He obviously got that goal in, in, in Madrid. I was over there for that one and that was a bit of a, a little bit of a smash and grab, but it gave us a, a good chance of going through into the next round. He also, you know, got a goal against Leeds and he's been a, become a sort of very popular, he's a very popular player amongst the fans because, you know, he's come through the academy. He's only 19 years old and he's scoring goals and playing really well and he, 
I think he's a player that I expect to start. Marcus Rashford, who usually plays well against City or at least gets goals and assists against City, hasn't been at the races this season. He's, he's been struggling, so I don't think he will start. Ralph Radnick's sort of pointed at the fact we don't have a lot of options up front. And even if he did, I think Cristiano Ronaldo starts. I think if he was to be rested in inverted commas for this game, I think he'd be fuming. And I don't really think you can afford to do that anyway. I know his record of late isn't great in terms of goals, but it would just be sort of very Cristiano Ronaldo-esque for him to pop up and do something at the Etienne against Manchester City. So, attack-wise, I expect them two to start. I think Ragnick's already said Maguire is going to play and he's going to stay, keep the captaincy. I know there's been some question marks there. Varane looks like he's, he's back to fitness. The big sort of question for me or doubt is who will who, who will go for at full-back because he did tend to prefer Tellers and Delo. Then he's brought in Shaw and Wambasaka again. And we've had a bit of a mixed bag with our fullbacks, and we know what City can do. You know, you've got the likes of Sterling, you've got the likes of Foden. They like to cut in as well. They're very the sort of the players I look at, and I think it must be a bit of a nightmare as a fullback because they're not out and out wingers yet. They're not strikers. They sort of cut in that in between area. So I'll be interested to see who he goes with at fullback. I fear, feel sorry, he may stick with Shaw and, and Wambasaka just because when push comes to shove, they've got the better record against Manchester City, and they're probably the best two fullbacks we've got defensively to cope with the the the, uh, the the strike power of Manchester City. Yeah. Well, Jay, we've got uh, a charity bet coming up later in the show. I'm notoriously rubbish at predicting scores, so I always give it over to the guests. So uh, what's your score prediction for this game? I, do you know what? I could see this. I mean, I'm probably going to be made to eat my words here, but I could see this being a bit of an anticlimax, and I wouldn't be surprised if it ended up being a nil-nil. I don't know. I know. <laughs> and I, I want to win the derby. I always want to beat Manchester City. I don't care what the scenario is. I always want to win that. But if we do take points off you, the the sort of the, the the happiness I'll get from that will be tempered somewhat by the fact it helps Liverpool in their bid for a, a league title. You but play I, you play Liverpool later in the season as well, so you could take points off both of us. Yeah, and then that'd everybody's be happy. Ideal scenario. Yeah, we beat you both, and everyone's happy. You know, that's that's the dream scenario. I, <laughs> I emphasise the word dream there, um, but I, I just won't be surprised if it turned into one of those games where maybe it's a nil nil or or you know, there's not as many goals in it as we expect. So I'm going to go for a boring nil nil, which no one really wants, does it? Because it doesn't do anyone any good, and I don't think it's certainly not the spectacle we want to see. But yeah, sometimes these games end up being like that. <laughs> This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. That was Jay Motti from the Stretford Paddock. Um, Chris, I mentioned City's record at home in the derby under Guardiola in the intro there. Um, Jay's not convinced it means much, but uh, does one win from six games worry you, given that the, that four of the uh, five non-wins were defeats? Worries me hugely, um, even more so on the form we've been showing last few games it's uh, understandable that Jay is being cagey because you know we're looking at United saying we're a much better team than them um, we're at home we should be beating them but they keep doing the number on us in derbies at home and they're looking at City going if if anything is uh, normal about this, this game then we're going to lose um, but they also you know, it's it's very uh, easy for him to say, oh, it means nothing because then they've got nothing to lose, have they? Uh, and then he can kind of crow about it afterwards. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure he wouldn't do that. But um, yeah, I'm I'm pretty worried about it to be honest. Uh, yeah, I've got like if you split me in two, there's like a a frothing um, 
teeth gnashed down to nubs, hair tearing out in despair um, on one hand. And then on the other hand, I'm like, well, it's, you know, with men, it's, it's Pep, we'll be fine. You know, we keep we keep delivering, it's going to be fine. But yeah, uh, they're, they're having a bit of a fight in my, in my soul at the moment. And I don't really know what to expect, but I'm pretty nervous about it. Uh, I'd, I'd get those hands looked at if that's how they're... Uh... Looking at the minute. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's like, have <laughs> you got any leeches for this? <laughs> <laughs> Ali, um, Chris hit the nail on the head there, though. City, City are the better team. They're the top of the table. United have been really struggling to put a run together, to put performances in. Like, Why, why is there any doubt over this game? Uh, let's just say City are uh, clearly the better team and clearly strongly favourites to win this game uh, in the exact same way that we are from played against Tottenham Hotspur. Um, <laughs> that's football, um, and it's the derby, and things happen. The form book, I mean, uh, sorry, apology for the cliche, but form book goes out the window. Uh, put it from my point of view, let's put it this way. Uh, this morning, one of the uh, Manchester City fan club accounts tweeted out an image from 1968 when Manchester United hosted Manchester City at Old Trafford Cricket Ground for a game of cricket between the two football teams. And I looked at that and thought, oh, God, can we not do that on Sunday? Please, please, go have a game of cricket. I'd really fancy your chances. <laughs> I, you know what? I don't know. I'll, I'll go back and look it up. It was, a, it was an American video link from Pate News. I hope yeah. we do. But I, I reckon we could have them now. Like, we've got a couple of, couple of strong Yorkshiremen, like, and Stones Possibly. and Walker, I reckon. They'd, they'd have anyway, <laughs> I, I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best to uh, do, do, divert the conversation away from talking about the Derby. Um, no, on paper, I, I, I think if you were to pick a combined 11 on this season form, uh, you would have 11 City players in it. Uh, and there's no getting away from that. And I think probably you could ask a United fan and they would probably agree with that at the moment. Um, but it's the derby and it always, uh, none of that ever matters. It's the Do you think we lack occasion... intensity in derbies? Sorry to interrupt. Do you think we lack intensity? Because you were talking about the intensity that Everton showed and it was a bit yeah. of a surprise and it was. And I don't know, Pep seems to be too respectful of United. He doesn't seem to hate them enough. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot, yeah. And maybe it's that. Um, I think uh, Pep also tries to win the derby as a chess match, or in the past he's often tried to win a derby as a chess match um, when they've come on and played as a, as a nice hockey match. Mm. <laughs> and uh, maybe that's it. Um, we've also, again, there's been one or two slightly strange tactical decisions in those games. Um, but most of them, you know, you talk about the, what was it, five... Uh, we failed to win five out of six home games. Yeah. Uh, and I reckon probably four of those, we were clear favourites to win, if not five or six of them. Um, and it hasn't happened. So I've got, I, I wish I had something more um, technical to offer by the way of consolation, um, other than the fact that you know, we remain a better team. And I, I just really hope that Pep doesn't overthink it. Uh, again, apologies for yet another Manchester City cliche. Uh, but I hope Pep doesn't overthink it. He doesn't pull any rabbits out of the hat. Um, he plays our, our best to live in with all of our best players playing in all their best positions um, and doesn't try and uh, outthink uh, Ranić and United. Because there's... there's the other thing we have to say about United is that um, I am absolutely sure that since Ralph Raniuk came in to replace Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, they have got worse. 
they've they've shown no improvement at all, and there's been several areas, several games that I've looked at and thought you're actually worse than you were before. Um, so I'd, every possible uh, straw you could clutch at in, 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 is pointing in our favour. Um, every well, possible now, rational, I know, I know. <laughs> every every possible rational argument you could put up says we're going to win, uh, and yet it, that has been the case in all the other games too, and we haven't. So, um, to be honest, I I uh, am probably in a minority of City fans, but I would take a draw quite happily at this stage. Well, let, let me um, let me try and give you a little bit enough. more confidence in all of this because the the one thing I would say about Guardiola is is yeah, okay, his record in in the derby hasn't been brilliant, but the derbies that he's had to win. He's won. So like the, the, the ones where he's lost at the Etihad, it tends to have been where there's been a little bit of leeway and he's been using it. So um, you, you take the, 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 the one in the lockdown season. City was streets ahead in the league and the Champions yeah. League was on the horizon. So he's, he's rotated the team a bit. It's not come off. Um, the same with, with that League Cup uh, semi-final. They were 3-1 from the first leg. Yeah. They were comfortably through. And yeah, they were hanging on a bit by the end of it, but he got the job done and it, you know the, the result was, was only in doubt for about five minutes towards the end of the game. The ones... The, the 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 ones at the end of the season where he's had to win have tended to be at Old Trafford, and that's why the result that that's possibly why his, his form at Old Trafford seems to be better than it is at the Etihad. So I just wonder this time around, knowing that Liverpool are breathing down the neck and and that uh, that this is in effect a must win game, do we see something a bit more like twenty eighteen nineteen, Chris, where City just turned up, bossed the game, beat United comfortably, and and I think they won three one in the end, and it was only a, a Lukaku penalty that got them a consolation. Hmm. Uh, hmm. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be that comfortable. I think, uh, despite what Ali was saying, uh, trying to reassure us there, saying that they've got worse, I don't know. I just feel like they're a bit more organised and a bit. There's a bit more belief in them under this uh, Ragnak or whatever he's called. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I do worry. I just, I, I want us to just. I want to see a bit more, a bit more snarl and a bit less swagger. Um, but does, does that come off the intensity. back of the performances against Spurs, Everton, and Peterborough? Though is that is that part of the thinking there? What do you mean? Does that come off the back of it? Was well, off the back? because Me we, we that or the yeah, because yeah, because we talked in the in the last in in the first part of the show about how they'd been kind of a little bit underwhelming against those teams. Yeah, well, to an extent, but more more just talking on reflection of um, the way we are in some derbies where we just don't seem to. I mean, it's great if you if you basically the you know the big brother approach where you just arms length while they swing wildly and you look at your watch on the other arm, saying what you're going to do, why don't you try and hit me? Uh, and we just control them and really like dominate them. But I just see it being a little bit more of a, a slugging match, and um, I just we really need to turn up, yeah, and show a bit more fight, not bring a chessboard to a punch up. Yeah, yep. um, Ali. The uh, the fact that City lead five 0 against Sporting as well in the midweek game, I guess that means all the eggs can go in the United basket. So how how do you think Guardiola should approach it? Um, maybe compared to how we will approach it, I don't know. Yeah, to the derby, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh well, there, there's absolutely no concerns about the midweek game at all. So he's he's picking from a full deck, as it were, and, and can choose whatever works best. Um, I mean, I I hope. I mean, I've. I, uh, who knows what Pep is going to do? Like we, when any any time any of us try to second guess Pep Guardiola, we always make fools of ourselves. Um, so who knows what will come out? Um, but I would <laughs> I would really like to see um, a, a, an easily picked back four, whoever that might be: um, Rodri, De Bruyne, Bernardo, and uh, Mares Foden. 
Sterling across the front. That's yeah. the team that we've been playing really well with in recent weeks and months. Um, United are not good enough that we have to change the way we play to accommodate them. Our best team is comfortably good enough to beat them. Let them worry about stopping us rather than the other way around. Uh, I, if he picks a team that's like that or, or very you know, something very similar, um, I will be happy and, and I think that will be enough. Um, you know, if he's suddenly got a back three and, and Gundogan at right wing back or something, <laughs> then, then, uh, then my heart will sink when we go into the... Uh, yeah, the alarm bells back. are ringing there, aren't they, with that one? Uh, the real fear is if it comes down to a controversial uh, refereeing decision. In the <laughs> we know which way that's going, don't we? I'll tell you something, though. Um, deadly serious, I very much want Mares to start because the chances of us having a penalty that somebody needs to put away are really quite high in that game. Um, and there's nobody I want on the pitch to be taking a penalty other than Mahrez at the moment. Yeah. That Spurs um, penalty was pretty special, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, let's, just, let's just finish with a quick word on uh, Sporting, Chris, because uh, I guess given, uh, as Ali said there, he's got a full deck to pick with for United, does that mean he might be a bit more inclined to uh, to give youth a bit of a chance in this Sporting game? I'm thinking the likes of uh, of Delap and McAtee, perhaps the most the most definite, because you, you think of the others, the you know, likes of Lavia, Egan Riley and Beite, Kaiki, could be, could be more likely from the bench, maybe. Oh, 100%. He's going to give him a chance. Nailed on if we're 4-0 up with 10 minutes to go, yeah. <laughs> is my uh, calculated response to that given uh, on experience yeah but I mean you, you would like I mean you, you could see a situation where McAtee and Delap start could you no to be honest uh, yeah one of them maybe um, maybe both because we are we are you'd think cruising but you know in the back of his mind it's going to be like he starts to they get a goal first 10 minutes out of nowhere pressure's on then they get another one before half time, and he's like, mm, "But I don't know. I'd be surprised if he picks two, but not not mega surprised. Uh, I'd be pleasantly surprised if he picks, uh, you know, more than one to start." I'll just, tell you what, just like you can, to play it safe. You can tell you grew up in the nineties. <laughs> yeah. Well, this isn't this isn't just my cynicism um, and sort of uh, you know cautious approach that that's coming across. This is watching what what Pep normally does. I mean, he's you know uber cautious, isn't he? to the extent that, you know, we play a strong team against Peterborough and people are, oh, it's not fair as it is picking all of these superstars. And if he doesn't, he's disrespecting it. But I think um, Champions League is like the grail for him, isn't it? So he's going to make sure we're even more home and dry before he starts sticking the kids yeah. on, I reckon. How, how dry does he want to be? Goodness me, he's dehydrated <laughs> at this stage. He's <laughs> desiccated, yeah. 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 Um, the charity bet total for the season so far is at £1,230. Two more chances to add to that this week. We're raising money for the Man City fans' food bank support. They're collecting donations for the Trussell Trust in Manchester. You can see them two hours before kickoff in the Manchester derby outside the Etihad. Just head under the bridge near the Asda. Uh, they'll be collecting donations of food and money for Man Manchester Central Food Bank. For us, William Hill is giving each of us a correct score single of £10 on each of City's games. Um, let's start, uh, Ali, with you for the uh, United game. What are you going for? I think absolutely anything could happen, but possibly the most likely one is that uh, it goes to form and we win 2-0. Uh, 2-0 is 6-1, to one, so £60 if you're right. Uh, Higgy, what are you having for this? 3-1 to the Blues. 
3-1 to the Blues is uh, 10 to 1 and 100 pounds if you're right. We heard earlier on that uh, Jay has suggested a 0-0 draw which is uh, 18 to 1 and 180 pounds if he's right. That leads us on to the sporting game. I'll kick us off with this one. I've gone for a uh, 2-1 City win which is 10 to 1 and 100 pounds if I'm right. Chris, what are you having? I've gone for 2-0. 2-0 is 10 to 1 and £100, just like mine. Uh, Ali, what are you going to finish off with? I'm afraid I think it's going to be a bit of a non-event, anti-climax, and I've gone with 1-1. One, one. Uh, that's absolutely fine, because if it happens, it adds 140 quid into the uh, hey. into the kitty. So it's uh, 14 to 1. Is going to start? I say no, it's because he's going to start at the same team that started at Peterborough. It's going to be like the, the B-string, I reckon. Mm. Is, is, so, yeah. like, all, all the first team players who didn't get a game on Sunday, and then like one or two others who did. Yeah. Oh, uh, remember, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble. Prices can change. And for more on gambling responsibly, take a look at BeGambleAware.org. Um, it's time now to hear from Howard Hawking. He's back on the show this week. And in light of Everton's apology from PGMOL, he's looking back at some decisions City should have had apologies for. Another week where little has made sense in football or elsewhere, there was one story that I could not ignore in the world of football as it involved City. The news that Everton had demanded an apology for having a decision go against them, which naturally got me thinking. This bizarre modern desire for apologies, as if that solves everything, is weird, but that rather misses the point on this occasion, namely that an apology was actually given, at least according to whichever party leaked the news, and I think we can all guess who that was. Apart from the precedent this sets, a very dangerous one, what is the point? And where were the other 20,000 apologies for previous mistakes made by match officials? With that in mind, I feel it necessary that City are not left out there. After all, news stories like this only really occur when City are the beneficiaries. There was even a law change after City's goal against Aston Villa last season. It's about time City got the same treatment as everyone else, so I have compiled a list of past decisions that it's now only fair the club receive an apology for. Now, to be honest... Most of the apologies are for me as well, not the club. In the 1933 FA Cup final, for example, City fans were rightfully fuming after Len Langford was clearly fouled before Dixie Dean put Everton ahead. City should demand to know why the FA did not allow substitutes in the 1955 FA Cup final, meaning City had to play most of the match with 10 men after a serious injury. What's more, I demand on behalf of the City group reparation of three shillings to cover potential prize money lost. With compound interest, this has risen to four shillings, payable by the end of the week. Whilst we're at it, I want an apology from Francis Lee, personally, for appointing Alan Ball, and an apology from Alan Ball selling Paul Walsh. Oh, and all the other stuff. Steve Lomas needs to apologise for taking the ball into the corner when we needed to win against Liverpool in 1996. City need to apologise for ruining many of my birthdays by getting relegated. And everyone involved with City in 2011-12 should apologise for the stress they put me through on that final day. Though I did get a book out of it, so I'll let that one slide. That referee, Mahos, can apologise for not giving a blatant penalty for Sergio Aguero against Monaco, especially as he booked him for a dive instead. Numerous referees can apologise for not awarding penalties for Raheem Sterling fouls, but still giving him one once when he tripped over his own feet. Liverpool away this season, you'd need a full-page advert in The Guardian to apologise for that refereeing display. The Spurs handballed in the Champions League, the raft of pathetic refereeing performances elsewhere in that competition. But then, all the decisions that City have not got in games that City won are quickly forgotten, of course, because there's never going to be an outcry over a piece of bad luck for a winning team, only a losing one. 
or a drawing one. I mean, tell me a worse decision than a non-penalty when Phil Foden was chopped down by the Southampton keeper last season. You can't. No apologies issued from Mike Riley on that occasion, funnily enough. No four-day rolling news updates on the injustice. City won, so it didn't matter. But most importantly of all, the one time I actually wanted a pie at a City match four years ago, they'd sold out. Did I get an apology from the City hierarchy? Yeah, right. They couldn't have cared less about my rumbling stomach. But hey, I could go on for hours about decisions City should but did not get. But I'll move on as I'm happy to do requests for other clubs too. Perhaps Sheffield United could ask Everton themselves for an apology for their suspicious comeback against Wimbledon in 1994 that allowed them to stay up instead of Sheffield United. Let's stay with Everton who are clearly champions of justice because perhaps Arsenal fans might be a bit bemused, what's new, as to why they did not get a call from Mike Riley after they played Everton, after Ben Godfrey stood on the head of an Arsenal player, which was then deemed accidental, before Everton went on to win 2-1. It was 0-0 at the time, for the record. If Everton stay up, by a point, will there be a four-day rolling feed on Sky Sports News about that decision? How far back do we wish to go in the season as well? And how long are we going to let these tiresome narratives dominate the news? Perhaps Dennis Law can apologise again for that backheel, wrongly. There's a Russian linesman that needs to sit down with the German nation and explain his thought processes from 56 years ago. Might need a seance for that one. And Cass need to apologise to fans of all rival clubs and most of the football media as their two-page announcement that City not be found guilty of financial irregularities was clearly too complicated for most people to understand if my Twitter timeline most days is anything to go by. But anyway, what a load of utter nonsense. What a waste of everyone's time. The ultimate mountain out of a molehill. Let's be honest, the fallout from the Everton match is less to do with Everton themselves whose lack of self-awareness prevents them from feeling deep embarrassment over demanding an apology, but more about who City's title rivals are. Because after Liverpool got two of the most ridiculous decisions I've ever seen against Crystal Palace recently, there was no news story afterwards, no apologies, no phone calls, no calls for the rules to be changed, nothing. But then Everton are always looking for clarification, be it a handball decision or a postponed game, so we should not be surprised. But never mind anyway, say many, as these things even out. But do they even out? Of course not. Why would they? What greater force would ensure that if a team has some bad luck, they then get some good luck? That's nonsense. Some seasons the team gets the rub of the green. Some seasons they seem cursed. And most importantly, this luck, good or bad, extends well beyond penalty decisions. So why focus on one type of incident that may or may not happen in the game? Why not analyse fouls too, unlucky injuries, playing a team at just the right time, scoring from a corner you shouldn't have had, not getting a corner that, who knows, you may have scored from. The thousands of shirts pulled in penalty areas not punished, the endless dives at one free kicks, initiating contact to stain on the sport, the harsh yellow cars that later led to a ban or meant the player had to adjust their playing style, the weather, a great leveller, at times, just like Peterborough's pitch was. Luck presents itself in a thousand ways. City's biggest stroke of luck came in 2008. For us fans, definitely. Some seasons like this one, I would say we've had a bit more good luck than bad, with injuries and the odd incident across a long season, such as Southampton at home, perhaps Arsenal away, maybe just slightly, Wolves at home, and the non-penalty at Newcastle, at which point City were already two goals ahead. Some other seasons, we've had very little luck. The same goes for every other team which is why opposition keepers kept putting balls into their own net, or as good as when playing Liverpool for a short period of time. It happens, and it does not all even out. The sport is unpredictable, but the best teams, managed by the best managers, will rise to the top most of the time. 
because they can overcome bad luck and have the resources to cope with bad injuries. So I look forward to the apologies that will follow because a bad decision is a bad decision irrespective of the end result. I expect Mike Riley will be very busy indeed if he's consistent with his thought processes. But ultimately we know he won't pick up his phone again because it's just not happening and nor should it. Explanations of decisions over the phone are fine and perhaps more transparency after matches where explanations are provided could prevent all of this and help with the perception of referees. But phoning to apologise? No, that is ridiculous and serves no purpose except perhaps to skew the decision-making of referees in future games involving the teams involved. So if Everton and Manchester United win soft penalties this weekend and VAR is fine with them, you may be able to work out why. A very dangerous precedent indeed. Hello, this is Jason Manford and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. Please support the show by becoming a backer. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. That was Howard Hocking. We're going to finish with some listener questions. Get them in for next week on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. You can email us through the website as well, bluemoonpodcast.com. Um, first up is Paul on Twitter. He says, are you worried about Kyle Walker? He's not been that involved recently and I wonder if being beaten by Harry Kane for Spurs' winner after he gave the ball away on top of his Champions League suspension has left him a little bit in the doghouse. Ali, what do you reckon? I think in the doghouse is a, a good description. That's kind of, he, he, he hasn't been at his best form, and I don't think Pep's been very happy with him since the uh, red card uh, in the Champions League. Um, but thankfully, we've got the depth that it hasn't mattered too much. And uh, he's Kyle. He will bounce back. He, he's still absolutely world-class fullback. Yeah, Chris, uh, I mean, Stones has played a couple of times at, at fullback, and as good as John Stones is, he's not a patch on Carl Walker at fullback, and he's not a patch on John Stones at centre back, is he? No, agreed. Um, Pet was definitely going to be absolutely seething with him about the, the sending off, even though I maintain to this day that the guy volleyed deserved volleying but but i mean the way the universe works is that it can be both a red card and a deserved volley you know yeah yeah these two things can coexist yeah i agree um but yeah definitely you know deserved volleying and he deserves to be in the doghouse for, for volleying him and giving the ball away i mean it happens <laughs> positioning for, for the jump against kane yeah it's not the best is it but you know he's still our first choice right back and I think um, a little bit of kipping in that cold kennel will hopefully give him the uh, Philip he needs yeah um, Luke Osborne on Twitter asks uh, on current form what's the best centre-back partnership um, Chris this this may be made easier by the fact that the two changes he made at half-time at Peterborough were, uh, were, were both injury related so it may be that uh, Diaz and Ake are not available at the moment um, but you know let's assume all four are fit who, who would you be your uh, your pick for the first two it depends really I'd, on current form is the question isn't it um, and Laporte just broke his own record for completed passes, didn't he? Um, and bragged about it and then um, gave the ball away spectacularly against <laughs> Peterborough. Like, he just, oh, I'm sick of these plaudits. There you go. <laughs> um, but I don't I mean, for me personally, I prefer to see um, Laporte in the team, but 
then I also think that Diaz is your first pick of centre-back and I love John Stone. So I don't know. <laughs> it is definitely got to be on form and relating to who you're playing against. So <sighs> who's the best? It's hard to say because it also relates to the opposition. But if you're talking about the derby, um, I'd go for Stones and Diaz if fit. Yeah, I was going to say, Ali, have you got an answer that doesn't lead us around so many houses, or are you? Uh, are you in the same? <laughs> you got the same problem. I was thinking it through. I was thinking it through. Yeah. <laughs> uh, briefly, if I can, um, <laughs> I, 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 I love all three of them. I think on current form, I think possibly uh, Stones and Laporte is actually the the best two centre backs we've got at the moment. Having said that, if I was picking a team, I would pick Diaz and Laporte, um, and that's really tough on John Stones because he doesn't deserve to be dropped from any team. Um, but the fact is, all three of them are, are at the absolute top of their game. Uh, well, actually, no. Uh, uh, Laporte and Stones are at the top of their game. Um, Diaz has dropped very slightly, but he will be back, and, and he will, could well be back next week, which is why I would keep picking him. Yeah, right. Well, uh, that brings us to an end for this week's Blue Moon Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and thanks also to my guests for today's show, Ali Fogg. Uh, absolute pleasure, mate. And Chris Higginbottom. Pleasure as always. Thanks for having us. Don't forget, go and leave us a rating and a review wherever you can. It all helps people find the show. If you'd like to listen to more, we've got bonus podcasts for Patreon backers. This week's is City Heaven, City Hell, as Dan Burke and Rich from the Ipswich podcast Talking Town reflect on two good and two bad games between City and the Tractor Boys. Here's a short clip. You say, Rich, that uh, Moss Side is not very nice for an away fan. It's not very nice for a home fan either, to be honest with you. And I was <laughs> I was sat in the... Uh, I don't know if you remember, we had this sort of uncovered temporary yeah, stand in, in the, the corner. corner. Yeah, yeah, we used to call the the Gene Kelly stand because we were singing in the rain, and it was uh, it was sort of, sort of exposed to the elements, and it wasn't raining that day, I don't think, but it was really really cold. And I remember three 0 down to Ipswich, and and the atmosphere starting to get a bit toxic at Main Road at that point. Uh, everyone's sort of seeing the way the season's going and getting a bit fed up with things. I remember a guy sitting near me in the stand going, "The, the load of shite these lot, sell a lot of them, just sell all the players, the rubbish." And it was really, yeah, r- really just not good at all and, and and we were just jealous of Ipswich weren't we basically after after the season that they were having that should have been us we, we yeah. thought really and uh, the defending on the, the third goal was really poor as well and uh, yeah he thought he looked like he was offside didn't he because he sort of went yeah. for it stopped and then he sort of he, he's gone around the goalie and just sort of tapped it in from two or three yards isn't he and yeah like looking at the linesman yeah. On the highlights, he's not even in frame when the ball goes into the box. It's really yeah, strange. But, yeah. but when but when you see it from the other side, you see that there's about four players playing him on, and yeah, you go, okay, yeah. that's how City were defending that year, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dan, do you remember uh, City's second goal? It was one of the one of the few instances where do you remember the, that old that, that that old part of the the laws of the game to try and discourage uh, dissent between uh, players towards the referee? Um, if a free kick was given and uh, one of the players showed some sort of dissent towards the referee, the referee could pick the ball up, carry it forward 10 yards and pop it down again and move the free kick forward. Um, City's, City's second goal came from that happening. Yeah, and it was Mike Dean, the referee, wasn't it? We've spoken about that before and I yeah. checked and it definitely was Mike Dean. Yeah, In his so, element. You know, yeah, which he, I mean, he loves anything like that, doesn't he? I reckon he'd, he'd love to enforce that rule now if he could. And, and yeah, when you watch the goal back, the free kick was taken from inside the area, wasn't it? Which was kind of strange. From Horlock, he whipped it in and, and Steve Howie got up and headed it home. So a bit of a collector's item, that goal, I guess you could say. That was a clip of this week's Patreon bonus show. It's available to listen now for everyone who backs the show by £2 per month. You can get the bonus shows in your usual podcasts app too. They'll download automatically every Monday. Details are on patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. I'll be back next week to review the Manchester Derby, so I'll see you then. 